If this life is driving you to drink, you sitting around wondering just what to think. Well, I got some consolation. I'll give it to you if I might. You know I don't worry about a thing, 'cause I know nothing's gonna be alright. Hi, I'm Ellie Mayo Hagen. And I'm Owen Jones. And this is Agitpod, our occasional podcast. <laughs> Look, right, let's just knock this bad boy in the head. It's been a very, very long few weeks. I just got back from Portugal. My ears popped. I was doing work there, not sunning it up. It wasn't warm enough. But we are, right, I'm going away for two weeks and we're doing it straight away when yeah. we get back. Basically, I hope I'm not uh, dropping some spoilers here, but what you need to know, know is Owen is at a crucial point in producing something very important professionally. No, I can just say it's my book. Oh, it's okay. It's a book. <laughs> the Politics so, of Hope no longer sounds like satire. A few months ago, I went, ooh, it sounds like satire. But it, it, it's, it sounds less satirical. Thanks to some of the actions of people listening. Yeah. So well basically, done. that's why we've been a bit off. And as we've said to you before, because we do all of this work on the podcast for free... When we go through busy times professionally, it does take a hit. So if you do want us to be uh, producing this more regularly, please donate to us. It's www.agitpod.com and a third of our money goes to a charity called LAWA, which is a domestic violence refuge in London for migrant and ethnic minority and particularly Latina women. That was seamless. That Ellie. was my plug. I didn't even plan that, but no, there you but go. It went in. But so um, we've got a very, very special guest coming up as well. So that's exciting. We're very, very excited about that. I mean, uh, to be honest, it's the only reason I'm doing Agitpod. I don't even like her. She hates me. Yeah. She. Uh, He's my friend of me. Uh, not even that. Just good old enemy. Good old fashioned she, enemy. She came in this morning, punched me in the face as per. And it then we leaves have, the stress. Do you know? In uh, if any of you watch Father Ted, there's this couple who uh, who are like <laughs> yeah, going you fucking bagger, like that at each other. And then as soon as anyone else appears, they like put their arm around. Oh, each hello, other. Father. <laughs> I was just saying to Mary. Yeah, that's me and Owen. Yeah, yeah. So off off this mic. Hatred, pure burning hatred. Anyway! Um, so, right, the government is falling to pieces around us. I mean, it really has is happened. a full-scale implosion. Did you follow uh, Priti Patel's flight back to get sacked from Kenya? I did, with several friends. I was away with several friends this week, and we were hooked to the Guardian live blog and the flight tracker. I looked a yeah. bit when she was over Sudan and then approached Greece. Yeah, it was a, it was a roller coaster. Yeah, or a flight. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just a flight. I, I do think Kenya. it kind of suggests that it is a bit of a slow news moment, though. I'm not sure that, like, that would have got as much attention had well, there been more. No, but I think the reason... Some people, to me, were, you know, I saw on Twitter going, well, it, I wish there was as much scrutiny of universal credit imploding. Um, and I, I, I do take that on board. Nonetheless, the more this government looks ludicrous and humiliated... Um, domestically, the better. The problem is we are an international laughing stock, and we are... I mean, this is the problem. We've got the most weak, divided, chaotic excuse of a so-called government uh, in modern history, whilst going through the biggest challenge, crisis, whatever you want to call it, since the war. Oops. Yeah. I actually think that, yes, universal credit should get as much attention, but I actually think that even on its own terms, like what she's been accused of is quite bad. Yeah. Like... And this is the thing we do... Because Pretty Patel, who... As you probably know, is the former uh, International Development Secretary before she resigned. Emphasis on the former. Former. Very much former. Um, and she uh, she had these secret meetings with Israeli officials. It is a bit murky. I think like what she's been accused of is offering uh, British aid to the Israeli army. Which is brutally.
illegally and illegally occupying Palestinian territory. Yeah, in a territory that isn't even recognised by Britain. And she sort of went on what she described as a personal holiday and, and had 12 meetings during that time, <laughs> including with the Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu. So I think that's like, I feel like that's kind of banana republic levels of and like, also, dodgy. I think that it, I think it is something that on its own terms, you don't even have to like, you know, yes, there should be more... Um, discussion of things like universal credit, but this is quite serious. Like, I think also when she became international development secretary, she suspended aid to the Palestinian territories. We need to know. I mean, I, I, there still needs to be a full, thorough inquiry <clears throat> because we're talking about a British cabinet minister having secret, illicit. Uh, meetings on we know promising British aid to be spent on <laughs> on the Israeli army, which is uh, as I've said, responsible for an illegal occupation. But we need to know actually, did the government? Because I think the suggestions that the government did know about some of these meetings that she met Priti Patel, a junior foreign office minister, while she was there, or just coincidentally bumped yeah, into fancy him. Seeing you, <laughs> what are you? Should we have a little coffee so I can discuss the meetings I've just been having? And also, the suggestion was she was actually there to try and get support for a leadership bid. What? Trying to get support from a foreign power engaged in legal and brutal occupation for a domestic leadership bid. I yeah. think we can all agree that her leadership bid has gone exactly as she planned. <laughs> <laughs> in your face. What we need to talk about, I think, is something which we're kind of not being trolled with, but a, a, a kind of big trope at the moment of those who think a left-wing leadership will inevitably lead to electoral doom, and then it didn't is uh, now, well, for a while, to go on out Brexit and, and work completely. First, we destroy the Labour Party, repent, 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 repent. Then we're helping to prop up hard Brexit, repent, repent, repent. But a big thing at the moment is, well, if the government is falling to shreds, which it is, why are the Tories doing so well in the polling? So at the moment, the latest poll has the Conservatives on 40%, Labour on 43%, even though they're going to hell in a handcart. I've got lots of ideas on this, but I think Ellie should kick off the proceedings. Well, I think that the Tory party has moved to the right under Theresa May and Labour has moved to the left under Jeremy Corbyn and UKIP has collapsed. Um, so that means that we kind of are back to a sort of polarised two-party system. So I just think that the crossover of swing voters has gone much smaller because now you've got like a good chunk of people in this country who'd rather like chew their own arms off before they vote for a socialist and conversely, you've got a good chunk of people who'd rather do that than vote for Theresa May. The fact that the Labour Party has moved to the left means that there's now this block of people who are like, I'm not going to vote for Jeremy Corbyn, he's going to turn it into Soviet Russia, you know, and I think that's why. We wish. Joking. <laughs> joking. <laughs> joking, but not, not really joking. We are mostly also jo joking. We are joking. Also joking, definitely joking. But the hats, I would like us to have the hats of Soviet Russia, if nothing else. They're very cosy, particularly in the winter months, keep your ears warm. Yeah, I've got a few. I mean, I mean, you say I've got a, on them moving to the right. I've got a different take on that on the issues of, for example, I don't know, immigration and kind of kind of xenophobic populism. That's true. I don't think, though, I think what May recognised when she became leader is that the free market neoliberal consensus is self-evidently disintegrating around her. And what her and the much maligned Nick Timothy and... Fiona Hill, was it? Yeah. Yeah. Those were her spin dogs. Nick Timothy kind of looks like Rasputin. But I think he shaved his beard bit. off. Really? Yeah. Maybe someone Sad. told him that already. And they recognise that. So what they try to do is actually, you know, in their manifesto, 
Um, it said, you know, free market, libertarianism and socialism are both discredited. And when she stood on the steps of number 10 Downing Street, she went on about the great burning injustices. Now, obviously, there was no substance to back up a single piece of rhetoric she had. But that they did understand that to some degree, at least on a rhetorical level. But I think what's happened in terms of the polling is, is this. I think, firstly... It is worth bearing in mind that Labour had the most catastrophic, unimaginable polling just a few months ago. 24%. The Tories were on double, uh, where Jeremy Corbyn's, you know, he was on 12% for preferred prime minister. So what Labour did during that election campaign is six weeks to go from 24% to drawing almost level with the Conservatives is extraordinary. Labour suffered one of their worst defeats since the war in 2015, not that long ago. It, it was saddled with being blamed for the financial crash, falsely, but that did have an impact in public opinion. That dragged it down. So to go, have the biggest increase um, in an election in just two years since Clement Attlee in 1945 as a vote share is um, unbelievable. But also, in to go from 24% in polling to 40% is unprecedented, pretty much, in, in the history of British democracy. The other thing I'd point out is normally at this stage in, a, in an election... Sorry. The other point I'd say is that it, normally at this point in the election, when technically the Tories, they didn't win the election, but they're the biggest party, so they'd be seen as the victors normally. The polling after that, normally the opposition goes actually down quite dramatically, and the government at this stage in the parliament have a very big lead, actually. That's what happened in 2010. It was only after that where you go into the middle of yeah, a parliament. I remember that. I remember feeling aghast at this horrible government doing so well. Yeah, it was only 2012, yeah. pretty much, when, you know, with the past, so-called pasty tax and so on. Um, when, when actually they, without that debacle, they all, their, their polling went down significantly and Labour got a, started getting opening up a lead. But I think it is similar to what Ellie said, though, my key point, which is what we've got now in Britain is, you know, Labour has an unprecedented lead amongst younger people. Among 18 to 24 years, a 52 point lead. So no precedent for that. The Tories had a nine point lead in, in that group in 983. Um, and even overall amongst the under 65s, about a 20 point lead. The problem is with Labour at the moment is it is struggling particularly with older voters who have largely been protected from austerity. That's not to say, by the way, there are not lots of poor pensioners as 1.9 million pensioners. But the living conditions of pensioners hasn't fallen overall. It has for working age people. We've had the longest squeeze in wages now since, according to the Institute of Fiscal Studies, the 1750s the worst fall in wages of any advanced country other than Greece itself. So what you've got, I think, is older people who have A, largely been protected, and B, are far more socially conservative than the rest of the population, particularly in issues of immigration, multiculturalism, also LGBT rights. We could go through the sense of what patriotism is and how you construct patriotism. So I think the problem for Labour is it has an absolute solid lock on younger Britons, and I'm including people like 35 to 44, where they had a huge lead at the last election, who are more likely to be socially less conservative, um, not as antagonised by issues like immigration, and economically far more precarious, particularly the younger you go, and an older generation who have been largely protected from the worst excesses of austerity and have socially conservative views. So we've ended up with an anti-socialist bloc. They're not enthused by the Tories. They just want Corbyn out. They want to keep him out. And the problem we have at the moment is even if the entire government, I don't know, Theresa May turns out to be a serial killer and, and, and even if like half the cabinet want to 
start floating, killing the firstborn. I think that was actually in the first draft of the manifesto. To be fair, you know that had some merit. And but that is the problem. I think, however bad it gets, I think their core vote now they're at no cost let the Reds take over. No cost let the Socialists into Downing Street. I think is maybe thirty eight percent, and Labour then has to boost its turnout, get more and more younger people registered, try and win over a bit more, some more older people. It would be very difficult to win, uh, you know, a, a majority amongst older people, but to, to try and chip into that advantage, because even if you win over a, a slightly bigger percentage, that is a lot of voters in a lot of places Labour needs to win. Yeah, I think the other thing as well, I've spent the last four weeks for various reasons off social media, and I haven't really been engaging in politics particularly. And so I've been like watching politics um, unfold, kind of not like a political commentator, but just kind of how most people do. And I think the other thing as well is that even though like, yes, there is um, chaos in the government, it kind of just comes across as like white noise. You know, if you're not if you're not like a real political junkie, it sort of is like, oh, that's interesting. And then you move on to the next thing. And I think what's really important is the overarching story that, uh, political parties tell about the kind of country that we live in and the kind of country we should live in. So I think that, you know, the thing that happened with Priti Patel, the, like the stupid, you know, Boris Johnson's like ridiculous comments um, about the woman who's in jail in Iran, like, yeah, that does not reflect well on the Tories. But I don't think that it like does the level level of damage to them that people like that pundits think it does because actually most people aren't paying that much attention. I, that's so true. I, I tested this with people who are close to me who are not sad political loser geeks like you, Ellie. No, like us. Um, <laughs> and um, they didn't really know who Pretty Patel was, let alone you know it, it, the the is you know meetings with Israeli officials and all the rest of it. I think there's obviously the more this goes on, cabinet ministers resigning the rest, a general sense of chaos seeps in. Yeah, but I definitely think that on the outside, like, the sheen has come off Theresa May. Like, she <laughs> I think we're past yeah. that point. <laughs> you, know, you know what I mean? Like, I definitely think from the outside, it's like the Tories just look like a, a shambles and they do just look ridiculous. Um, but I don't think that they, from the outside, from outside of that political bubble that they look as bad as people inside the bubble think they do. I think it's just like, I think most people just get on with their lives. They read the news once a day and it's kind of like, oh, that's interesting. Yeah, the new statesman Stephen Bush has an interesting point that if you really want to kind of, you know, if you're basically a political loser who is just hunched over Twitter like us a lot of the time reading what's going on in in politics and 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 scout you know going reading the politics sections of newspapers and talking to lots of political friends and all the rest of it just listen to for example i don't know the news insets of radio 2 which is listened to by what about 15 16 million people every single week uh, or local local radio stations and most people dip into politics for a very very short space of time like 30 seconds a day i would say on the way to work when they're listening to the radio the metro is another one basically the metro is, is you know millions of commuters might flick through the metro and i just think there's a general sense obviously that is is permeating of chaos but i do think the problem is that amongst pensioners and the socially conservative and the affluent labor has a structural uh, disadvantage but that said I they, they also have an advantage though a disadvantage in terms of the media though like i've noticed in the last sort of like since i spent this time like off social media and i haven't really been engaging with the labor party as much as i usually do i've noticed that whenever there's like 
a story that comes up that affects both parties, Theresa May's response is always the headline. And then in the corner, it's like Jeremy Corbyn pledges X or Jeremy Corbyn says this because she is the prime minister. Mm. So I think like you, you also have this disadvantage when you're in opposition of like, it's so much harder for you to create a splash because actually what the prime minister pledges mm. is supposed to happen. Whereas like when you're in opposition, you can call for X and you can call for Y and you can pledge this, that and the other, but it's all theoretical. True, but ideologically, I think they really are on the defensive in the same way the left was in the 70s as the post-war consensus of you know, nationalisation and high tax on the rich and strong unions collapsed. And the free market system is clearly in collapse. Neoliberalism mm. is in collapse, not just here, but everywhere. And, you know, there's either nativist, right-wing, xenophobic populists who are benefiting or the Sanders movement, Podemos in Spain and um, Syriza, despite the defeats, obviously, in Greece and so on. Um, but I think um, they're, they're torn between, do we double down on, do we say, basically, like born-again Christians, if you like, that... The problem is we've just not preached our philosophy with enough conviction that we need to spread the word and evangelise about how brilliant free markets are and that's why we've lost the argument. Or do we say, well, actually... And, and the problem with that is then you double down on, on a philosophy which has lost public mm. consent. and Because at the last election, I would say what happened is this. No one ever bought into neoliberalism in public opinion. Never happened. People did not think privatising utilities was a good thing, slashing taxes on the rich was a good thing. They were resigned to it. The last election broke a spell. It made people think there's a viable alternative to something I never really bought into. But the other approach of the Tories is to go, well, to go, there are structural big failings, which is what May tried to do originally. This system is clearly not working for a very big chunk of the population. But the problem with that is then you start conceding the argument to your opponents. That's what Labour did. New La uh, uh, Labour did so in the 80s onwards, constantly retreating to the Tory line of argument. And that helps, if you like, cement uh, what, we can, what will end up being a new political consensus established by Prime Minister Jeremy Corbyn. I think um, that there's something more mercenary going on with May and her kind of weird defences of the free market. So, like, you know, in her speech, um, such as it was, <laughs> <her> speech, <laughs> <laughs> sorry. <laughs> um, so yeah, sorry about that interference with the mic there. Um, yeah, she like you know on one hand she like proposed uh, price controls, which when Ed Miliband proposed them, they were sort of described as like Soviet. Commie. And then on the other hand, she was like um, talking about defence of the free market. And that's obviously like a very confused position. And I think that what you know, I think the reason for me that she is like advocated both of those things in the same speech is kind of more straightforward, which is I think that she's, they're getting leaned on by their donors. Because in 2011, it was reported that 50% um, of their donors come from the finance sector. I have no evidence of this. It's just speculation, just in case any angry bankers get in touch. Um, <laughs> but I get sued for that. Be yeah, what a weird thing yeah, to be sued over. Yeah, that would be weird. Like, get a life, do something different. Um, <laughs> but I think, yeah, I, I just think that like a lot of their donors come from people who have... Uh, made vast amounts of money from the free market and believe in it ideolo ideologically. So I think that, like, basically, that the Tories, they, they started going down this road of, like, Milibandai economic policies and extremely xenophobic social policies. And um, and I basically, I think that, like, their donors are starting to say to them, like, you need to defend the free market now. I think that, I think that's not far-fetched at all. I think you're absolutely spot on. And I think, actually, you've had business leaders saying that. Um, yeah. Because, actually, you've got, so they're in a tricky position because they know, like she knows that Theresa May knows she can see she's not she's she's actually more astute. And Nick Timothy and Fiona Hill were like her advisors, 
were more astute than David Cameron in terms of which way the wind is blowing. And they can see that it's going one way. But also the people who give them money are pushing them in another direction. No, I, I think you're spot on because I think actually, if you take, for example, immigration, as a general rule, their party donors did not like anti-immigration rhetoric. You know, big businesses, as a general rule, are not anti-immigration. What they do is, you know, be happy with the Conservatives doing that anti-immigration populism, partly because it's useful, because it deflects anger away from those them, at the, from them yeah. at the top. But as long as they would also, at the same time, uh, fight for a system, a dogma, an ideology, which benefits them. They cut their taxes, they repeal workers' rights, they, uh, you know, hammer unions or whatever. As long as they do all that... You know, a lot of them would go, well, actually, well, we hire immigrant workers and all the rest of it. But I think now the problem they've got is they've got the worst of both worlds, which is a lot of them are uneasy about a, the form of Brexit that the Tories are pursuing. And they think they've basically indulged a what they would regard as anti-business rhetoric. And, and that's what they've attacked Theresa May explicitly for doing. So they think actually they're they're basically they've indulged this kind of protectionist style economics, which they don't want. Um, and at the same time, they've surrendered the argument on the free market. And they think that's actually probably quite rightly helped cement Corbynism as the dominant spirit of our time politically. So I think you're absolutely right. I think I think the donors probably are leaning on them to go, what are you doing? Your whole purpose as a political party is to argue for a system which actually benefits us, but which is about the free market, rolling back the state, privatisation and You've got to, you know, we're not we're not bankrolling you for the hell of it. So I think you're absolutely. I just think you're spot on on that. And I think actually, though, on Brexit, it's true that there are businesses now. Um, and I say this. I'm trying to work out what I think because I'm a socialist. And I want obviously to change the economy and build a socialist economy. It's true, though, just as a matter of fact, that there are businesses now who go, do you know what? I could probably live with corporation tax of 27 percent uh, and higher taxes on the top five percent of people rather than the form of Brexit that the Tories are currently pursuing. I think that's probably true. In fact, there's a lot of evidence that suggests that and a lot of big business leaders are, and big financiers are meeting John McDonnell, the shadow chancellor. Um, and I think they're doing it on the basis they think, well, we don't like what Labour are proposing. Nationalise them, John. Mm. Yeah. Nationalise them for Britain. <laughs> John McDonnell should do that, lure them in with the promise of like... It's a slightly less shit deal than, than like the, a Tory Brexit. And then, bam, nationalise them as soon as their back's turned. I like that. Him in his lair. Come in. Make yourself at home. Nationalise and say, what? Yeah. What? Oh, no. nothing. And then the big visitor looks in, looks a bit nervous, but then sits and smiles and then gets nationalised. Um, yeah. But the other thing, though, which should embolden us, though, and frighten them, and this is what a lot of Tory MPs are saying privately, is... They think, well, Labour started off with 24% in the last election and then in the course of the campaign ended with 40% of the vote. This time, if Labour could do that last time 24 points behind, if Labour start an election three or four points ahead on average in an election campaign where the Tories have no discipline, where they've, they're thrashing around because they don't know what, you know, do they double down on the ideologies? Do they start conceding the argument? Where they're hopelessly divided over Brexit. Where, frankly... Like, Theresa May is basically, like, a hostage, being held in a hostage situation. Yeah, and they don't have anyone to take over who they think... I mean, the polling suggests every possible alternative would be worse. They think in an election campaign, at the moment... Labour would win. We've also got, you know, this unseat campaign that I'm doing with Momentum where we're targeting uh, marginal seats. Boris Johnson had 10,500 majority 
back in 2015. It's now 5,000. Ian Duncan Smith, 8,500 to 2,000, 2,500. So you can see now the foundation's been laid, a very active, very big Labour movement and party, hundreds of thousands of members. The Tories, a demoralised husk, barely any activists at all, knocking on doors. Uh, their donors angry and frustrated with them. Um, you know, t total internal civil war and acrimony. So I think that... You know, yes, there are structural reasons at the moment, and I think the Tories would get a good share of the vote, whatever happens. The issue is, because I think... I want to hear what you think about this, actually. My worry is Labour needs to get a big, big majority um, because, firstly, if it wants to do radical sweeping policies, there are some MPs who are ideologically... Labour MPs who are ideologically hostile who will try and stop those policies and are privately saying we'll moderate them in power the smaller Labour's majority the easier that will be particularly in combination with the House of Lords that's one problem the other is it will be a, a transformational project in terms of what they're planning to do and that is not you know that like Thatcher did in a in a time but in a different direction it, my worry is if Labour get a majority of say 20 then it will be a rocky period in terms of trying to build a different sort of society and, you know, the odds are that governing parties normally lose seats in, an, in another election. And we need at least two, to, well, a lot more terms than that. But if, if you want to guarantee a second term and a 10 years of a socialist government, really, you probably need a majority of 70, 80. And I, so I think, you know, it's not to pour cold water over stuff, because I think we've come up with quite mixed kind of nuance. I think we've been nuanced. But I do think... You know, it, 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 there's no. It would be problematic if Labour just won with a small majority, and everyone has to be very ambitious. That's why Momentum's unseat campaign is targeting Jacob Rees-Mogg's seat, which has a majority of over ten thousand. We need to win those seats. I think that um, one of my political rules that served me well in the last three years is whatever the um, pundits and uh, politicians are predicting will happen, the opposite will happen, and so it worries me that all of these like people you know, the, the, the pundit class, if you like, are predicting that uh, Labour will, has got this one in the bag because uh, they've, been, they've been wrong about everything. And so I think, I don't think that it is all sewn up for Labour. Um, and that really worries me. And I also think um, one thing that I've learned this year, because I've done some work on uh, public opinion, I've done some consultancy work on it, and, and it's involved going to focus groups and that kind of thing, is that for people over 45, the 1970s is like a specter that haunts their political opinions. And they very much associate Jeremy Corbyn with like the winter of discontent. And uh, they're worried that he will kind of bring that type of politics back to Britain. And I don't really know how you convince people that that won't happen. So I don't think that it's all sewn up for Labour. Um, I don't think that anybody should be kind of complacent about that. And I think that when you're following the news and you're following like the minutiae of the Tory disintegration, like every hour of every day, it's very easy to think um, Labour's going to smash it at the next, next election. It's going to be amazing. But I actually just don't think that's the case yet. And I think that, yeah, exactly as you said, if Labour does get into power, it needs all the help it can get to completely transform mm. this country because it's not going to be easy to do that. Like there's going to be a lot, there are a lot of people in this country who do not want the vision that um, no, the, the Labour Party has set out. They're terrified. It, particularly like in the, you know, people with a lot of power mm. and they will throw everything that they've got at stopping that from happening. 
So it really is important that, you know, mm. people who support the Labour Party, who want them to get into power, they really do need to, like, actually be active in that. Exactly. Just because talk to their mates in the pub, but actually, like, go to their CLP, get involved with momentum and actually do things because... If Labour does win, we're really going to need all the help we can get. Exactly. I mean, that's that's my fear, is that, look, if you end up with Labour have with a majority of, say, 20, it's just, in my opinion, it's just, just not enough. I mean, far, I'd take it. <laughs> Rather yeah, than yeah. what we've got now, that would be a start. But look, Labour will face entrenched opposition of a big chunk of the civil service who are ideologically wedded to the current crumbling economic and social order that has governed this country for since the late 70s. Um, it will uh, obviously the media will ferment this idea of chaos, chaos, chaos. You know, if the pound starts falling like it did, like it's done since Brexit, but they downplayed that. But under Labour, any anything like that will be economic chaos, and they'll they'll try and ferment this sense of chaos breaking out. They'll put pressure on MPs who aren't supportive anyway to peel away and and and, and so on. Um, big businesses and will scream and and threaten relocations and to strangle the economy. Foreign powers will, you know... The CIA will mount a military back coup. <laughs> no, I'm joking. No, no. Yeah, but or will it? I love that. In a few years, someone listens to this back, living under a brutal dictatorship. Yeah, I was laughing about you. <laughs> fucking idiots. <laughs> um, yeah, so I think, you know, the need... And, and what has to happen, by the way, is there has to be a permanently mobilised mass movement. And, and so it, hundreds of thousands of people in the Labour Party is brilliant... A lot of more, I hope, will get active, particularly in the unseat campaign. But if Labour comes to power, you'll have to mobilise people. The unions will, in workplaces, in communities, because this will have to be a government with not just a parliamentary approach, but an extra parliamentary approach. A, a sense of being a movement in power, but that means a mass movement, a mobilised movement that can challenge and defend a, a transformative revolutionary government not in a armed insurrection way but a revolutionary break from what we've got and it will be have to be mobilized and determined to defend that project because it will have absolutely everything the work thrown at it the idea of them allowing that form of government in one of the major western economies without going hang on a minute just can't see it just can't and that's why you know it has to be a thumping big majority but the other thing quickly though that is because people keep saying why isn't Jeremy Corbyn massively ahead as preferred prime minister but in 1979 when the Tories won the election Jim Callaghan the Labour leader had a big uh, lead over Margaret Thatcher's preferred prime minister I'd say that was because you know there was those fears over Thatcher representing a radical departure which made people nervous but also as you say any incumbent automatically has an advantage by definition, if you're prime minister, you look more like a prime minister, even yeah. if everything's falling apart. But also, you just get so much more airtime. That's like definitely something that I've noticed since like withdrawing a lot from me, the media and social media. Um, is that you just get so much more airtime if you're the government in power, like the party in power, because what you what you say will happen, people think will probably happen because you're you're in power. So yeah, I think. De Deborah Matteson, who um, she works for Britain Thinks, and um, I saw a lecture with her in 2011, and she said that uh, the way that the opposition wins is that they need to look like a government in waiting. And I think that's true. Like, I think that the, the current party needs to look clapped out. It needs to look exhausted. It needs to look chaotic. I mean, the Tories are definitely covering those bases at the moment. But also Labour needs to look 
like a government in waiting and it needs to appear as an injustice and as an imbalance of like the natural forces that this crappy disorganized parties in power and labor this sort of ready-made formed government is not in power like and the uh, the election should be seen as a way for voters to correct that balance and put the right party in power the party that should be in government in government like i think that's how it needs to look um just the other thing quickly we should talk about is and this links in but it's the so-called paradise papers the exposure of major corporations and wealthy individuals uh, stashing away their cash at the time when austerity is justified across the Western world, which has hammered... Naughty Gary Lineker. Oh, dear. Naughty, naughty. Naughty. Not... Someone confiscate his Walker's crisps. He's been a bad boy. <laughs> but, um, yeah, whilst austerity is justified on the basis there isn't enough money. Now, you, Ellie, of course, were a early member of UK Uncut, the was. movement which put tax justice on the agenda. Go on, explain. Yeah, in um, 2011, uh, or 2010 actually, me and a group of people who I was friends with um, set up this uh, movement called UK and Cut. And what we used to do is we used to go into shops like Vodafone, Topshop, Starbucks, shops that we knew had avoided tax, and we used to shut them down. And the idea was that we were like acting as kind of like an unofficial um, HMRC, which is the government body that collects tax. Um, and going and shutting down tax avoiders like we said that they should be doing because our argument was that they were too lax. And, you know, to be honest, like at the time, we didn't really care about tax avoidance that much as an issue. We, um, what we wanted to do was we wanted to create an argument about a group of people who were living the high life and not playing by the rules. And the rest of us who were getting skinter and skinter and who had to pay our taxes and who had to play by the rules, otherwise we'd get arrested. And... Um, and we basically wanted to put the argument forward that like this was unfair, like if they paid their taxes, we wouldn't need austerity and that kind of thing. And actually, like the austerity argument, we didn't really do very well on. People, I think, still thought the cuts were necessary. But what we did manage to create, and I think is really you can see in the last couple of years how much it's taken hold as, a, as an idea, is the, the sort of um, anger towards this like elite class of people who um, just haven't been touched by any of the economic hardship that Britain has been going through. Um, and basically they get to choose the kind of uh, relationship they have with the law, whereas the rest of us, we just don't have that power. And I do feel that like UK and Cut and Occupy were the sort of ground, the groundwork for the Corbyn movement, even to the extent that some people who were in UK and Cut are mm. now in momentum. Some of them work for Jeremy Corbyn, mm. you know, like... Um, I do think it was like those movements sowing those seeds. That's so true. Everything from so the student movement of 2010, early 11, a lot of those are key figures now in the Corbyn movement, if you like, whether it be obviously UK and Cot, uh, whether it be the Occupy, whether it be disabled people against the cuts, the People's Assembly against austerity, all of those laid the foundations at a time when you had the kind of mush of what Labour was offering at the time. Yeah. And the, and the, and the, but it, it, it did lay the foundations and then a lot of those activists ended up driving what has happened. I think, though, what you're... I mean, you're right, because you can caught what they really did, I thought, was expose two things, really. It was it was the sense of austerity as a con because we're told there's not enough money, but there is, it's just over there. And yeah. that sense of injustice, one rule for some, one rule for everybody else. And um, I think, though... What we're looking at here is, I'm just every day more and more just convinced by it, which is 
the old, the old centrist argument that you, you just tinker with the existing order. This order is bankrupt, it's unjust, it's unsustainable, and obviously people don't want tinkering, and if we don't offer a new society, then the xenophobic populists will. Uh, not Well, they won't. They will blame immigrants, and we will have an authoritarian form of populism which demonises anybody but the people responsible for the situation we're in. We have to increasingly make the case that we're going to build an entirely new society altogether, because this society is so rotten, one of the richest countries that's ever existed, which can't provide the housing people need, uh, which can't provide the decent, secure jobs that people should expect as a birthright, which can't provide increasing living standards, which can't provide proper, properly working and functioning public services, uh, which can't provide a better lot in life for young people than their parents. That allows dozens of working class people to burn to death in a in a, in a in a graveyard in 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 one of the richest boroughs that has ever existed, uh, in the face of of the face of the earth, this order is fundamentally broken and bust. Where you have multinational corporations and the wealthy on a industrial scale hoarding away money, uh, when they depend on the state for everything from infrastructure, public sector research, in work benefits, an education system that trains up their workforce a law and order that protects them, you name it. This system is broken, it's bust, it's dead, it's it's a zombie system. And what we have to argue for is a new socialist society which calls for the democratisation of every level of society, the economy, the workplace, politics, and to quote the Labour Manifesto of 1974, a fundamental and irreversible shift in wealth, wealth and power to working people of their families. We need to build a society that's run by working people in the interests of working people uh, that, as I've said, democratises the economy, democratic forms of public ownership, and ends a system which is based fundamentally on profit for a tiny elite, based on instead a society based on cooperation. And I just think that is now clearly the mission that we're on. It is a socialist project for a socialist society which fundamentally ends this order altogether, in my opinion. I think that um, what the current state of politics shows us is that activism is good and you should always do it because it does have um, good results, even if you don't think so at the time. Because I remember when we were in UK and Cut, you know, there were lots of moments where we would we, we, we um, tried to take uh, HMRC to court over a deal that they made with Golden, Goldman Sachs. We lost. Um, we we did get Starbucks to like pay like I can't remember it was like ten million in tax or something which they were good, which like um, they actually ended up giving as a gift to the treasury because the treasury were like you can't just pay an arbitrary sum of tax you just have to pay your taxes so they so they ended up receiving it as a gift you know and then like um, Vodafone was sort of let off a few things like you know there were there were lots of different things that we tried to do that we failed to do and that like the student movement tried to um, stop the tuition fees vote from happening it failed. And there were lots of moments in those years when I remember feeling like it's all been pointless, it's all been a failure. I can't believe I gave two years of my life to this and we didn't achieve anything. But now I sort of think what, what we actually did in that time, and I didn't really kind of realise that we were doing it at the time, is we like told a story about an alternative world mm -hmm. to the world that we're living in at the moment. The same with Occupy, you know, everybody got evicted quite violently from Occupy in the end. Um, and it kind of fizzled out for various reasons. And I think, you know, a lot of people left Occupy feeling demoralized, exhausted. And, um, and but actually now I look back on that time and I, and I realized that what we were doing was we were building 
um, the idea that another world was possible. And so the reason, as you said earlier, like the reason that people accepted the neoliberalism is because not because they liked it, but because it was the only system on offer. And now I realize that over the last five years, we told a story about another system and now people can choose. And that's why neoliberalism is in trouble. Like as um, our friend Sirio said, like what's happened over the last couple of years is that um, neoliberalism's invisibility cloak has been yanked off and now it's suddenly in the middle of the room and has to justify why it's there. Surprise! Yeah, <laughs> and you can go even further back, like um, the Iraq war, like I marched against the Iraq war as a teenager. Um, I marched for it. <laughs> yeah, thanks Owen, thanks a lot. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, you were just walking up uh, Shaftesbury Avenue in the opposite direction, weren't you? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, and you know, and I remember at that age as a teenager feeling very demoralized that the Iraq war like had still gone ahead, even though I, you know, I, as a teenager, I genuinely thought we were going to stop it. And then I was very upset when that didn't happen. But now I can look back on that and I can think of like, actually the profound effect that had on people's attitudes towards foreign invasions. And also like, I think that that to me was the first cracks that began to show in this system. And, you know, and then... So you can kind of trace this like line mm. of activism going back kind of years and years and years of struggles getting passed down from one generation to the next. And when you're in them, you feel very, you can feel like this isn't making any difference. And it's only when you look back on that that you can mm. see all the pieces coming together and actually how eventually it does produce social change. I think that's so spot on. I mean, again, you know, with the, obviously I marched, I don't know how many times with the anti-war movement. I remember I first marched September 2002 with my granddad, who's now dead, but he... But I remember even that anti-war protest at the time, and that was before the biggie in, on February the 15th, 2003, was hundreds of thousands of people. And what it did, and I've spoke to veterans of the anti-war movement in terms of those who helped lead it at the time, I think it, what it really did is end New Labour's lock over, if you like, progressive opinion. I think it, it, it's hegemony, that it was the end of New Labour's hegemony, and it created a constituency of people who were very politicised and angry, but who never really found a political outlet until Jamie Corbyn's Labour came along. And a lot of those people actually, you know, and some of them were relatively older, but they 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 then swamped into the, swamped into the party. That's pejorative. They then joined the party on mass. A lot of them and, and and really drove a lot of the Corbyn surge. But you're right. All of those movements laid the foundations. They uh, they created the political space. They cre they created a sense of political possibility for people and a rejection of what they saw as a consensus propped up by both New Labour and the Conservatives. Um, and they, they, they heightened consciousness. They hammered into this idea of one rule for those at the top, one rule for everybody else, of a bankrupt and broken order uh, that couldn't be tinkered with but had to be replaced. And I think you're right. It just shows when people fear with protests, hang on a minute, march against the war, it happened. You know, it's, march against tuition fees, they still happened. There's now the possibility of getting a government which will not have any wars in the likes of Iraq, which will get rid of tuition fees, which will clamp down on tax avoidance. And all of the things those movements fought for, are it's very possible now they will happen. And they, the precondition was those movements in the first place, which struggled and fought and laid the foundations. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I think like the lesson that I've learned from like watching the last sort of seven years of politics is like activism, the activism that you do might not achieve what you want it to achieve, but it does achieve something and that matters and it will, the results will show eventually. Like they might not be the results that you want or the results that you expected. Like I never thought when I was, you know, I remember in 2011, I spoke to a room of about sort of um, 
30 middle-aged activists with a certain obscure MP known as Jeremy Corbyn about um, in Islington in his constituency um, about anti-cuts. And after the, after the panel, which was kind of quite boring, we all just sort of said our piece, people just asked questions. He got off on his bike and rode off to an anti-war demonstration. <laughs> um, and, Classic you know, and it was just like, I remember at the time being like, you know, oh, this is this kind of uh, weird guy in the Labour Party that like we all know because he just turns up at every protest and he just speaks wherever he can and like didn't really like, you know, I was sort of grateful for his like support, but didn't really take much from it because I was just like well that's just Jeremy Corbyn he just supports everything and I didn't think at the time what I'm doing now will one day make this man prime minister I never thought that never even crossed my mind but like you know it, it that is what happened not obviously not me I'm not saying I as an individual but I'm saying this movement was one of the jigsaw pieces so the activism that you do might not achieve what you want it to achieve but it will achieve something um that's worth makes it worth doing I think Right, well, I think we've solved most of the world's problems there, Ellie. That's a very profound note to end on. I think it was. I, I personally just going to find a barricade and bloody well man it. Um, <laughs> so uh, we will. So we'll be back in about two weeks. I genuinely promise. Um, what I'm going to do for the next two weeks is just do my book and ignore everything else as best I can, um, because as Ellie will testify, uh, this book is driving me pretty kooky. Uh, so I do actually do need to write it. Um, which is a nightmare. Uh, but uh, we do have a very special guest coming up as well. Um, honestly, when we say special guest, we mean actually, genuinely, I think people will be very excited. It's the Queen. <gasps> Ellie. What? She <laughs> likes Jeremy Corbyn. She doesn't. Please don't sue me, Buckingham Palace. <laughs> Imagine that. You're such a weird... Yeah. One is very taken with this Jeremy Corbyn. I got, that's that actually really good. Really? Yeah, that's was really... It? I thought the Queen was there. Well, you know, maybe she is. Um, so we'll be uh, scrutinising uh, the Queen over her tax effect. No, um, so <laughs> we, will, we'll, we'll, we will... I put it to you, Your Majesty. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Look, Your Majesty, stop interrupting. I'm going to ask you a question. <laughs> <laughs> did you or did you not avoid tax? Well, I, let answer the question. <laughs> Imagine that. We'd actually <laughs> yeah. probably be lynched in the streets. Yeah. So we won't We'd be beheaded. That. So that's cheery. Off with their heads. <laughs> um, we will have a very special guest. And, you know, we will do these far more regularly. It's just, honestly, the last few weeks, I don't even want to go there. Yeah. On that note, see you soon. Lots of love, everyone. Bye. Bye. But I don't worry about a thing, because I know nothing's going to be all right.